Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We start, we're going from the Tina to the Terra trade. Why investors are now saying there are reasonable alternatives to U.S. stocks. Case in point, Japan surging to a three-decade high and not looking to take control, but coming pretty close. Warren Buffett boosted stake in what's become one of Berkshire Hathaway's top holdings. And then over to Washington. The debt standoff continues as the Treasury reports its cash holdings have been cut in half since last week with a deal still elusive. Plus, the end of Siri as we know it, what Apple's doing to take on the likes of ChatGPT and other AI chatbots. And then later in the show, gearing up for deer as the agricultural bellwether Get set to report results. It is Friday, May the 19th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. Happy Friday. I'm Frank Holland. Let's kick off your Friday morning with stocks going for three straight days of gains after the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 closed at their highest level since August of 2022. Taking a look at the futures right now in the green across the board, the Nasdaq doing the best percentage-wise, up two-tenths of a percent. The S&P and the Dow both up fractionally at this hour. So ahead of the opening bell, the Dow and the S&P, they are holding on to gains for the week, and they're on track for their first winning weeks in three. The Nasdaq, as you can see, it just continues to outperform. It's this line up here that you see up 3.2% for the week, um, and it's on pace for its fourth winning week in a row. So if you think that's impressive, it is nothing compared to a pair of overseas markets. We're looking in Europe. The DAX is hitting a fresh 52-week high. The DAX even higher right now in the early trade over in Europe. But it's really all about the Nikkei, closing at its highest level in 33 years. We're going to have much more in these two markets coming up later in the hour. We see the Nikkei up this morning as well, uh, about three-quarters of a percent. Now for a quick check on U.S. bonds. As always, we begin with the benchmark 10-year. Yield right there at 3.62, rising this week. As we're inching and inching closer, hopefully, to a debt limit deal, we're seeing the two-year yield also higher right now, 4.22, something we continue to watch here on Worldwide Exchange. And also energy, especially the oil market. We always start with the U.S. benchmark of WTI crude at basically 72 and a quarter, up almost a half a percent this morning. Brent crude basically at 76 and a quarter, up almost a half a percent this morning. Natural gas down a half a percent. Now for a check on this morning's top corporate stories, our Silvana Hanau is here with those. Silvana, good morning. Hey, Frank, good Friday morning to you. Let's start with Warren Buffett, because he may have told CNBC's own Becky Quick he does not want to take control of Occidental Petroleum, but that's not slowing down Berkshire Hathaway's recent buying spree of what's now become its seventh largest holding. New filings out late yesterday show Berkshire 
snapping up some 3.5 million shares of Occidental at $58 a share over the past three trading days. And it's boosting its stake in the company to just north of 217 million shares or 24.4% of the company. And this week's purchases follow a similar string of buys last week, which totaled $130 million. A group of TikTok creators is suing Montana's state attorney general over its new law banning downloads of the popular social media platform. Now, in the lawsuit, the plaintiffs, who collectively have more than 500,000 followers, allege that the act, quote, attempts to exercise powers over national security that Montana does not have, adding it likely violates the First and Fourteenth Amendments as well. And as negotiations continue over the U.S. debt ceiling, the U.S. Treasury now says that the amount of money it has on hand to pay its bills is now at its lowest level since 2021 at $68.3 billion. Treasury says a week ago the balance was almost $155 billion, Frank. Yeah, something we're watching. We'll be talking much more about that later on the show. Savannah, we'll see you later in the show as well. See you later. Thank you very much. All right, sticking with the Treasury and the ongoing debt limit standoff, the White House releasing a new statement this morning saying the Democratic negotiators are, quote, making steady progress in their talks with Republican counterparts in avoiding a U.S. debt default. This is President Biden attends the G7 summit with other world leaders in Hiroshima, Japan. Complete coverage from around this world this morning with NBC's Bree Jackson in Washington and our own Martin Soong with the president in Hiroshima. Bree, let's begin with you. Good morning. Good morning, Frank. Well, negotiators only have two weeks to reach a deal before the nation defaults. Now, as you mentioned, both sides say they are making progress, but there are also concerns about possible concessions. President Biden in Japan meeting with leaders of the world's largest economies as negotiators back home try to avoid an economic catastrophe. Look, we're not there. We haven't agreed to anything yet, but I I see the path that we could come to an agreement. While overseas, the president is receiving updates on debt limit talks. On Thursday, Vice President Harris stressed what's at stake, echoing the administration's warning that a first ever government default could spark a recession, cause the U.S. to lose millions of jobs and damage the country's international reputation. This does not have to be a crisis. Our position is clear and simple. Congress must act to prevent default. One major sticking point, the GOP's plan to impose stronger work requirements for social safety net programs, like food stamps and housing assistance. And so the ball is firmly in the court of the President of the United States and Senate Democrats to respond to what we've already done. The President has to have the option to say, These things go too far. They are not acceptable. I'm not going to harm American families. A growing number of Senate Democrats are signing on to this letter, calling on Mr. Biden to invoke the 14th Amendment. That would allow him to raise the debt ceiling without congressional authorization. And Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned that invoking the 14th Amendment could lead to a constitutional crisis. Frank. All right. Thank you, Bree Jackson, our Bree Jackson live in D.C. Let's send it out now to Martin Soong, who is with President Biden at the G7 summit in Japan. Martin, what's going on, on the ground there? Frank, good morning. Yes, President uh, arrived uh, yesterday around 4 p.m. Uh, local time. 
Uh, Air Force One actually touched down earlier at a Marine Air Station, Marine Air Station Iwakuni, just south of where we are here in Hiroshima. Then he hopped on board Air, uh, Marine One to be choppered here to the G7 summit. So far, he's already met the host, Prime Minister Fumio Kishida of uh, Japan. Prime Minister Yoon, President Yoon, excuse me, of South Korea, arrived this afternoon, and the three of them are going to sit down for a mini, uh, a mini summit or trilateral meeting as part of the G7 summit as well. So this is really the big thing from the summit so far. The president arrived and he made it, right? Uh, we, we, uh, we've talked about reports earlier on that because of this whole debt ceiling crisis, he may have had to cancel uh, his attendance here at the G7 summit. But in the event, he's made it. What he's not going to make, though, he's canceled the second leg of his trip. He was supposed to initially fly on to Australia, to Sydney, for the Quad Summit, and then after that on to uh, Papua New Guinea for a summit of Pacific Island states. Uh, but what is happening, though, is Secretary of State Anthony Blinken is going to be flying on from Hiroshima to Papua New Guinea, where he's set to sign two uh, defense cooperation deals with Papua New Guinea, defense cooperation, as well as maritime security involving likely possibly deployment of U.S. Coast Guard ships into that area. Back to you. So, Martin, we know the president is cutting his trip short, but what's left on his agenda before he returns back to Washington? Well, good question. We uh, know from a G7 uh, leader statement on Ukraine that we uh, were following earlier today that uh, this is something the president is going to have to sign off on, and this is uh, more export controls on Russia. This is likely to feature highly in the G7 final communique come Friday, the end of the summit. And what it involves is adding 70 entities to uh, the U.S. commerce blacklist and also more than 300 new sanctions against individuals, against entities, against vessels, and against aircraft as well well, all part of efforts, ongoing efforts, escalating efforts to try and tighten the noose around Vladimir Putin, deny him revenues, and therefore deny him the ability to finance and prosecute this ongoing war in Ukraine, now into its 16th month. Back to you. Yeah, a new development this morning on CNBC.com that Ukraine's President Zelensky also planning to attend the G7. Martin Soong, live at the G7. Thank you very much. All right, a whole lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. But first, the investments giving U.S. equities a run for their money as the Tina trade looks to fade into the rearview mirror. Plus, much more on the debt ceiling standoff and the current state of play. Ed Mills from Raymond James is going to give us his point of view. And then later in the show, Deerstock getting some Wall Street love ahead of earnings today. But Main Street still not, you know, it's not quite convinced. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eden Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at EdenVance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. 
Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. After a lackluster year for stocks and bonds in 2022, high-quality fixed income, including some T-bills and investment-grade corporate bonds, they're shining bright. They are offering what investors see as better competitive returns over U.S. equities. The three-month T-bill rising yesterday to 5.28%, its highest level since January, with a rate now higher than the yield on earnings from companies in the S&P 500. It's the first time that has happened since 2009. And a new note from Ned Davis Research pointing out After a decade of Tina, or there is no alternative, markets have now transitioned to Terra. There are reasonable alternatives. Let's dive deeper into this with Lee Baker, Apex Financial owner and president, as well as a CNBC contributor and financial advisors council member. Lee, great to see you as always. Hey, good to see you again, man. All right, let's talk a little bit about bonds. We were just kind of hitting on the yield when it comes to the three-month, the one-month yield even higher than that. So short-term bonds really in vogue right now because of that yield. Give us a sense. When you're telling your your clients to allocate to bonds, what's the percentage right now today? How does that differ from a year ago? So the the typical client today, it has crept up. You know, historically, we've talked about the 60-40 portfolio. uh, But over the last decade, it's been extremely difficult to get the kind of yield that we needed uh, from that 40%. So there was more allocations to real estate and those sorts of things in order to get that that, uh, yield that we needed from the 40%. But because of what's happened in the last 12, 15 months, we've been able to go back, if you will, to a decade ago, a decade plus, and begin to do some allocation. Uh, it's incredibly attractive to people with all the volatility that's going on to say, hey, listen, I can get 5% and it's really safe. Uh, a lot of people are interested in taking that option. Okay, so it was 40%, let's say, a year ago. What is it now when it comes to bonds? More like 45%. And is that all short-term bonds, that increase, or... Are you kind of spread it out? It's not all short term. Uh, It is spread out some, although uh, we're placing significant emphasis on uh, shorter durations. You know, uh, things have been ticking up. Perhaps we're done with uh, rate hikes. Don't know for certain. Right. Uh, With the uh, possibility of a recession in the offing, uh, who knows if we'll be looking at rate cuts, you know, somewhere in the next 12 months. Okay. here's something else you're looking at. This is pretty interesting. They're called buffer Mm -hmm. ETFs. So these are ETFs with downside protection, but they also generally have a capped upside. In this environment, why should investors take a closer look at these? Well, so some of our clients are saying, listen, we really can't afford to be out of the market, but I'm incredibly nervous. And, you know, we go through the process and explain, hey, listen, here's an option for you uh, so that, uh, you know, we believe fundamentally that at the end of the day, Congress will get us act together and we'll get a deal. But what if we don't? What if things go down further than we expect them to? Uh, Well, here, you've cut off a lot of your downside as far as equity markets are concerned, but you still give yourself the opportunity for a significant amount of the upside. So uh, it's one of those things that's very appealing to people that are nervous and closer to retirement or in retirement. Yeah, it's a really interesting idea. I think all of us want maximum upside. And if you can have a limited downside, that's good, but still capped upside. So I got I to think about those for a minute, Lee. Absolutely. Um, one other thing we want to talk to you about is portfolio protection. Is there a move that you're telling your clients to make, you know, outside of going into short-term bonds to protect their portfolio with all the volatility and all the questions? Yeah, so one of the things that we've been doing with some clients is saying, hey, listen, there are some things that 
might be a little more liable to the downside if things play out the way we think they do. You know, one of the things that I believe, and, you know, I'm not by myself here, is that we're either in a recession or we're headed that way, albeit I think it pretty mild. Uh, so there's companies like Exxon, which I love and I think it's a great company. But if, in fact, we do uh, roll over into a recession, I expect Exxon to come off of its highs. You know, we're up at 115 bucks a share uh, off of $35 a share at the uh, beginning of the uh, pandemic. Uh you know, let's let's trim some of that. Let's take some of our winnings off the table and other stocks uh, that might be a little more susceptible in the event that a recession does materialize. All right. So time for a little profit taking. You're saying that cash Absolutely. is not trash. Very interesting. Nope. All right, Lee not Baker, at all. Thank Love you it. very much. And for the audience, right. don't miss your chance to join Lee and other top advisors, investors, market experts, technologists and economists at the virtual financial summit on June 15th where they will discuss the market risk ahead, potential buying opportunities, and tools advisors can use to generate consistent returns while minimizing downside. Scan the QR code to register or visit cnbcevents.com slash financial advisor. All right, ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, one job where pay is, only, is not only keeping up with inflation, it's actually beating it. Toyota goes back to the drawing board for its best-selling pickup truck, and take a look at this. Our own David Faber heads to the mound at City Field, your top trending stories when we come back. Stay with us. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, welcome back to... Jump the gun. Welcome back to WEX. Time now for your big money movers. Three stock stories the morning. First up, Applied Materials. Shares down 1%. The chip equipment maker's second quarter results beating estimates. Shares are lower, as you can see, as the company expects third quarter sales to decline. Although, still come in above analyst estimates as it deals with a glut of inventory and a slump in memory chips. Farfetch is rallying today. Shares up more than 20%. The luxury fashion company posting a narrow first quarter loss as sales top forecast. It's also keeping its guidance for gross merchandise volume this year at about $4.9 billion. That is above analyst estimates. Finally, Flowers Foods, the maker of Wonder Bread, Sunbeam, Tasty Cake, and other bread and baked brands. Harder to say than you think. It expects sales to fall below Wall Street forecast this year. The company setting a slow start to 2023 and softer category demand following a quarter in which more consumers have been dining out. Flowers says it plans to launch more product outside of bread to boost demand. You can see shares are down more than 4.5%. We're also watching shares of Deer this morning as the company prepares to report fiscal Q2 earnings in the next hour. Investors keeping a very close eye on what the report has to say about crop prices, the impact of higher interest rates on farmers' purchases, labor costs, and the overall state of the economy. But the bigger tell may be coming from the stock's performance. You can see it over here. It's down double digits despite an average analyst price target of $475 a share and zero sell ratings. Despite some bullish analyst sentiment, investors, they are not singing the praises of the overall industrial sector. It's underperforming the broader market as more investors turn to growth stocks instead of value stocks. Just take a look at the technology sector outperforming industrials by a wide margin so far this year. You can see the upswing when it comes to tech right there. Joining me now to discuss, Michael Shilsky, DA Davidson Senior Research Analyst. Michael, great to see you. Thanks for having me. Good morning. So, Michael, you are actually one of the most bullish of all the analysts. Your price target for deer at 520 right now. You haven't had a buy. So I know one thing that you're watching is farmer income, specifically when it comes to corn. So we're going to show the viewers your estimate when it comes to farmer income. About 500 bucks an acre right now, just above that. 
but it's actually a pretty sharp decline year over year, down more than 38 percent year over year. What is that going to tell us? What does that tell us about Deere's report? Yes, hey, Frank, yes, that's correct. It is down about 38% over the prior year. However, at $508 per, um, per acre, um, it's still the fourth best year of, of all time for um, farmers. So in our opinion, while that sounds like it's uh, down by uh, quite a bit, finding cash coming around, uh, I think coming in at the, at, the, at the end of the year for, for farmers to go ahead and buy some more equipment next year. All right, so you, that's why you're so bullish on the stock right now. So a good sign for our farmers. I want to talk to you. We're talking about that, that uh, differentiation between tech and industrials, tech obviously performing. But how does tech impact deer and other parts of the industrial sector, specifically AI? It's interesting. Deer's taken a, a really big uh, first step and probably, uh, I would say, leading the overall ag market in some of these new technological innovations. Two examples for you. Um, in early 2022, Deer unveiled its first autonomous tractor. Now, it doesn't do everything that, that farmers want to do. But it's starting out very slow and in, uh, in somewhat small quantities. But imagine a car on, on like a, a road that's autonomous. Well, that's a little bit dangerous. There are some issues there. The autonomous tractor is in an open field. It's a lot safer. And it should see a lot more uh, adoption than we see than autonomous automobiles, at least, for, um, at least as far as a percent of the, of the overall fleet. The other area that I find interesting for deer is they are starting to introduce some autonomy and, uh, and AI into certain other farm functions, like spraying for weeds. So in the past, you just have a, a giant airplane or a giant sprayer just spray everywhere uh, on a field to kill any weeds out there. Now they've got new technology on their tractors that can go through the field, scan every single leaf and say, that leaf's a corn leaf, that leaf is a, is a, is a weed leaf, and just spray enough uh, just to kill that one little weed leaf. Uh, that can save farmers up to, um, um, I'm told, two-thirds on their pesticide and herbicide costs. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, that, and, and those savings saving. generally get poured back into farm equipment, which also helps out deer, and also puts deer in software as a service, a higher margin business than industrials. So give us a yeah. sense of what's going on with industrials overall. It's underperforming so far this year. What's your outlook for the rest of the year? Yeah, um, at this point, people like Deer and some of the other uh, ag equipment names all have good backlogs. Farmers have had a good 2021, had a good 2022, and could not get all of the um, all of the machines they're hoping hoping to buy. They, just, they, had, they had supply chain problems and uh, high demand, and, and, and Deer just has been unable to uh, deliver on its high demand. So it sounds like they've got good backlogs for the rest of this year and into even 2024 at this point. So we right, think there's going to be, yes, there could be some, some, some uh, downside here, but nothing, nothing tremendous. All right, Michael Shilsky from DA Davidson, thank you very much. Um, anybody watching right now, as opposed to listening, you can see we've are, we're showing you pictures right now of President Biden in Japan right now, about to take a photo in just a moment um, here at the G7 Summit as, and also on CNBC.com right now. We're just seeing uh, some breaking news that Ukrainian President Zelensky also plans to attend this summit. Um, President Biden actually cutting his overall trip short to come back here and deal with the debt limit negotiations. Uh, we will continue to show you pictures from the G7 summit and President Biden throughout the show. All right. As we had to break, watching Hong Kong listed shares of Alibaba sinking in overnight trading after the e-commerce giant missed sales estimates for its most recent quarter and laid out a cautious tone for the year ahead. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify or other podcast apps. Worldwide Exchange, a.k.a. WEX, will be back in just a moment. It is right around 5.30 a.m. here in the New York City area, and we are just getting started here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. The White House revealing fresh progress around the debt ceiling talks, adding to hopes 
that a deal could be taking shape. Ed Mills from Raymond James is standing by with what that could mean for the markets and for your money. The down the S&P are set to snap multi-week losing streaks as the tech sector continues to move higher. And Apple reportedly looking to stop its workers from using unsanctioned AI tech as it looks to develop its own chat GPT rival. It is Friday, May the 19th. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back and happy Friday. I am Frank Collins. Pick up a half an hour with the check on U.S. stock futures. As we mentioned earlier, they are in the green across the board. We're seeing the Dow Jones uh, moving just a bit higher, the Nasdaq fractionally higher, the S&P fractionally higher. So a strong start to the early part of the trading day. Um, ahead of the open, the Dow and the S&P, they're on positive. Uh, they're on track for positive territory this week. Poised to snap three week losing streaks. You can see the move right here. The Nasdaq doing the best out of all of them, up 3.2% on the week, seeing a bit of a upswing here at the end of the week. Um, all of them, uh, all of them poised for a gain this week, as we said. We're also looking at the bond market, looking at the yields in the bond market always. We always start with the benchmark 10-year, 3.62, moving higher this week. Another thing to note, the yield on the two-year note, 4.22, also moving higher this week. And we turn to energy, specifically oil, WTI, the U.S. benchmark. Looking at that this morning at basically 72.50, ticking a bit higher since we started the show up over three quarters of a percent. Brent crude, the international benchmark at 76.50, also ticking up higher at the same level. Natural gas, though, falling this morning, down one and a quarter percent. All right, we've been talking about it all morning long, the end of the Tina trade and the start of what some are calling the Terra trade. This is the idea there are reasonable alternatives to U.S. stocks. And there is no better example than what's happening in two key overseas markets. Jamana Bersetchi, she's in our London newsroom with a look at both. Jamana, good morning. Good morning to you, Frank. Yes, well, stock 600 as a whole is very close to a 15-month high. You can see today there's a lot of green on the board, but there is one index that we're playing a lot of focus on, and that is the Zetsche DAX index in Germany. You can see the level is 16,258 as it stands. The all-time high is 16,290. So we're very, very, very close to breaking through to that all-time high. Six-tenths of a percentage point firmer uh, on the day. Let's just take a quick look at the heat map of the DAX and how things are playing out. Broadly speaking, we have seen a bit of a charge back for some of those key German industrials, which is a bit surprising given some of the macro concerns that we've been talking about over the last year or so. But industrials really have led back the charge, and that is something to watch out for. Now, another index we're watching very closely as well is the Nikkei. And here, we're not just talking about uh, a 15-month high for the stock 600, but we're actually sitting at a 33-year high now for the Japanese index. Today, we are up eight-tenths of a percentage point. So uh, it's taken a long time to get back to those early 90s levels, but we're finally there again. Let me just take you to some of the top performers in today's session. And uh, no surprise to anyone, really, but the reason the Nikkei has been doing so well is on back of electronics and some of the moves that we've seen in electronics as mega cap big tech stocks do well in the U.S. We're also seeing a similar move play out in Japan as well. One of the reasons why that Nikkei continues to go from strength to strength. Frank. All right, our Germana Brissetti live in our London newsroom. Germana, thank you very much. All right, time now for a check on this morning's top stories, including Apple getting tough on some outside AI. Our Silvana Hanau is here with that story and many others. Good morning again, Silvana. Hey, Frank. Good morning again. That's right. So Apple is reportedly restricting the use of external artificial intelligence tools among its employees. According to The Wall Street Journal, the tech giant is making the move around ChatGPT and other AI services over fears that workers who use them could potentially release confidential data. Now, Apple, of course, is carrying out its own AI efforts, buying up a number of startups. 
Lazard CEO Ken Jacobs is preparing to step down from his current position. The decision by Jacobs, who will remain at the firm and continue working with clients, comes after Lazard reported a loss in the first quarter and has warned of an uncertain outlook for the rest of the year. Former Obama administration official Peter Orzag, who has run Lazard's financial advisory unit since 2019, is expected to become CEO. And Twitter is accusing Microsoft of using its user data in unauthorized ways. In a letter to Microsoft, Elon Musk's attorney laid out claims, including ones that Microsoft could be in violation of multiple provisions of its agreement with Twitter over data usage. A Microsoft spokesperson tells CNBC the company will review the letter and respond appropriately, Frank. Silvana, thank you very much for that. All right, turning now to one of the stories we've been following all morning long, President Biden and other G7 leaders in Japan this morning, gathering for what's known as the family photo, after which he will head to a working dinner with other G7 leaders. We will, of course, watch for any new developments this, uh, this morning. Right now, as we mentioned, President Biden posing right now with other world leaders for that so-called family photo at the G7 in Japan. All right, turning back here to the U.S., now to the latest around our debt ceiling talks. While President Biden is in Japan for the G7, the White House revealing that Democratic negotiators are making, quote, steady progress in their talks with their Republican colleagues in reaching a potential deal. Just yesterday, Kevin McCarthy signaled some optimism around a possible agreement, saying the House could vote on a new debt ceiling deal as soon as next week. Meanwhile, the Treasury Department revealing the amount of money the U.S. has on hand to pay its bills, it's fallen to its lowest level since 2021. It stands at just over $68 billion, down from almost $155 billion just a week ago. For more on this, let's bring in Ed Mills, Washington Policy Analyst at Raymond James. Ed, always great to see you. Morning, Frank. All right, let's talk about the X date. All right, so we're getting this new data from the Treasury. We hear about the so-called X date. Supposedly it was June 1st. You've been doing a lot of research. Is it definitely June 1st at the earliest now, or some of this data out the Treasury, could that possibly change that? Maybe June 1st, um, probably June 1st. One of the big concerns that I have, and I've been following the Bipartisan Policy Center because I think they do some of the best work on this, is on June 1st and June 2nd, there are $97 billion worth of bills due. And you just mentioned that is below $100 billion at the Treasury that's left. So unless the cash balance at Treasury starts going up over the next week, that's going to put a ton of pressure to get it done by June 1st. But if they're able to get through that $97 billion worth of payments on June 1st and June 2nd, then it might be until July before we really have to worry about this. So this is a big part of the negotiations is a daily look at the cash balance at Treasury to see exactly how much pressure is on negotiators to get a deal done this weekend and pass something next week, or do we punt this? Okay, so Ed, you got me. You had me a little nervous there. You said maybe with like four E's on the end, so it sounded like it may have been creeping before June first. But you're still saying June first at the earliest, but we may have more wiggle room. Yeah, just a, a, on the kind of where the payments are, how much is coming in. Right. I, I do think that there was a strong sense that June first was a little bit of an alarm bell from okay. Treasury, but you do get a sense from Speaker McCarthy's comments uh, yesterday that they are looking more and more at June 1st as potentially that date and have a lot of pressure on them. The, okay, the but concern really. that I have for the market right now is, you know, to the extent that um, it is, you know, kind of going along, humming along right now, this is DC. 
Frank, okay. almost every single time we get into these negotiations, something falls apart before it comes back together. And so the next step I'm watching is, when does one side say, this is too far, we can't support this, and we go through this negotiation in the press with the markets open in terms of can what the deal get struck? Uh, do they have to do one more thing before they can get this across the finish line? All right, Ed, you're playing with my emotions here. First, we're good. We got more time. Now you're saying that the deal might be even shakier. So we have seen a lot of recent optimism from the White House and from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. Um, let's just be positive and say there is a deal. What does that mean for the markets? Are there any sectors that will possibly see the biggest upside? So, Frank, I'm looking at two things. One, does permitting reform get included in this deal? It's tracking positive. And if it does, that just supercharged everything Congress did last year on the Inflation Reduction Act. A lot of things that are very positive for clean energy, uh, positive for legacy fossil fuels. But getting that macro overhang and things continuing to be spent uh, out of D.C., that'd be viewed as a positive. The thing that I'd weigh against this, and I know you want to be positive, but if you go back to 2011, the low of that year wasn't in the lead up to the resolution of the debt limit and the downgrade of U.S. debt. The kind of low of that year was in October after the debt limit deal because the budget cuts that were proposed were much greater than anticipated and the impact to GDP was viewed to be pretty negative from the 2011 deal. A lot of those budget cuts never went into effect. So we're watching very closely what the deal has on budget cuts, especially as everyone's anticipating a recession. And so what does that do to the macroeconomic kind of forecast for everyone on the street? And is that a leg down because there is a greater concern about a pull forward of the recession. Right. Now, I think that's part of why Biden doesn't want to go too far here okay. in any sort of budget cuts. But that's the kind of the risk reward that we have to weigh after the deal is struck. Ed Mills, thank you very much for the insight. We always appreciate it. Thanks, Frank. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, retailer inventories are shrinking, but for all the wrong reasons. Our Courtney Reagan lays out why Target, Home Depot and others are sounding the alarm around this growing issue. But first, as we had to break some of your top trending stories, Toyota unveiling its redesigned Tacoma pickup truck, including upgraded safety, convenience, and performance technologies amid increased competition in the U.S. mid-sized pickup market. The automaker has been the leader in sales for nearly 20 years, though Toyota's current market share of roughly 40% is down from more than 60% a decade ago. Inflation worries not hitting kids' piggy banks in the U.K. just yet. A new report shows that allowances for British kids currently stands at $8 a week, a jump of about 2.5% from a year ago. That's outpacing both the country's inflation and their parents' wage gains over the past year. And fresh off his exclusive interview with Elon Musk, our own David Faber threw out the first pitch for the New York Mets' Tampa, Ray, Tampa Bay Rays game at Citi Field yesterday. That set the stage for an upbeat afternoon as the Mets went on to beat the Rays 3-2. Looking at a Faber's form there. Mets winning consecutive games for the first time in nearly a month. So I don't think Faber is going to take the mound, but he may have been a good luck charm. Much more Worldwide Exchange coming up after this. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your morning call sheet where we check on a few of the morning's biggest upgrades and downgrades by firms you know and stocks that you likely own. We begin with Morgan Stanley upgrading Shake Shack's rating and price target, moving from underweight to equal weight and from $52 per share to $63 per share. It cites Shake Shack's agreement this week with activist investor engaged capital and potential catalyst in the coming years for the more optimistic outlook. 
RBC Capital initiating coverage of Planet Fitness, giving it an outperform rating and a price target of $86. RBC says it sees the company's highly franchised model delivering strong ongoing earnings in a normalized post-pandemic environment. And J.P. Morgan upgrading Bloom Energy's rating from neutral to overweight. It says the stock's recent pullback is overdone, calling it a stock that will be a long-term beneficiary of the energy transition. And shares of Bloom Energy this morning up more than 6%. All right, shifting gears to retail and a growing issue for retailers with more sounding the alarm on shrink, specifically organized crime taking a bite out of the bottom line with Target becoming the latest major name to reveal the true financial impact of the problem this week. Our Courtney Reagan joins us now with more on this growing problem. Courtney, good morning. Hi there, Frank. Good morning. Yeah, Target definitely taking the rare step of quantifying it. But Home Depot has actually been calling out shrink from organized retail crime since 2019. CFO Richard McPhail told me this week shrink from theft was the biggest pressure on gross margin this quarter, saying, quote, our country has a retail theft problem. Theft related shrink has also been called out by Walmart. Target, Dick's Sporting Goods, Lowe's, Macy's, and Ross stores in recent months. It's hard to know exactly how big the issue is, though this week, New York City Mayor Eric Adams said retail theft was up 44% in 2022 from the year prior. Deloitte's U.S. retail store lead, Rob Harold, believes it's increasing in aggregate, and an annual NRF loss survey estimates total U.S. retail shrink was $3.7 billion more in 2021 than in 2020. Why is this happening? Well, online marketplaces and social media make it easier to sell stolen goods, and they're harder to police. Thieves quickly change and create accounts and profiles. Online options also drive what is stolen, items that are more easily resold, not necessarily the most expensive goods. Now, the INFORM Act goes into effect June 27th, requiring online marketplaces to collect, verify, and disseminate high-volume marketplace seller information. Further, ORC rings instruct criminals to steal just below the felony threshold in many areas, which is between $1,000 and $1,500 in many states. So areas with higher thresholds often have higher instances of ORC. Retailers often instruct their employees not to intervene for safety reasons. Tragically, Home Depot employee in California was confronted with a thief last month, and that employee was killed as a result. But the hands-off approach has also increased more brazen theft incidences. Theft does, of course, dent profitability, but it also lowers tax revenue and could raise prices and annoyance, frankly, for honest shoppers. 60% of consumers surveyed by Bizarre Voice for CNBC have noticed more items are locked up or have some kind of security tags on them. Frank? Yeah, you know, you're seeing more and more of this, Courtney. And if you look online, you can often see videos out from out in California where people are running out mm. of stores and things like that. Um, you mentioned that there's some states that are seeing higher levels of this. Are there certain areas in retail seeing higher levels of these incidents? So I think it's categories like personal care items and things that are more easily resold. So it's not exactly like the luxury items. I think the uh, survey said only about 11 percent of these stolen goods are actually luxury items. It's easier to resell a toothpaste or a deodorant, believe it or not. And they're not trackable, right? There's no serial numbers on those and they can turn over hands pretty quickly. So is there any tech out there? You mentioned that some things are locked up, but is there some tech out there that stores can use or retailers can use to prevent this? 
Yeah, so someone was telling me about, you know, instances about unlocking certain electronic goods at point of sale and basically making them inoperable until they go through a point of sale and they're actually purchased by an honest shopper, like a drill, for instance. Uh, but again, that's only going to be on some of these more higher value electronic goods. You can't really make a deodorant inoperable, right? Um, <laughs> but of course, there's there's certain AI that does actually help retailers identify areas of the store and or different goods that are more highly stolen. There's license plate identifiers. There's all sorts of technology that can be employed. You just got to make sure that the shopping experience is still okay for the honest shoppers. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Courtney, I, I, I always see like the razors locked up when I go to yeah. the supermarket and I never really thought I was like, who's stealing a razor? But now I know. Courtney yeah. Reagan, great reporting as always. Great to Thanks, see you. Thanks, Frank. All right, ahead, the one word every investor needs to know today, our market panel of Aaron Gibbs and Tiffany McGee They're going to lay out the names that they're seeing opportunity in and where they're finding protection for client portfolios. Plus, Bank of America makes the bear case for U.S. stocks and tells its clients that now is the time to sell. Much more on that. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap up. Six stories you need to know before the opening bell. Bank of America is repeating its call to sell U.S. stocks, saying tech and AI are forming a bubble adding that rising bond yields pose a serious risk. B of A, which accurately predicted last year that recession fears would fuel a U.S. stock exodus, is now recommending selling the S&P 500 at a 4,200. That's the level they say you should sell at. The latest inflation read out of Japan remaining well above the 2% target of that country's central bank. Japan's core core index rising at the fastest annual pace since 1981, raising the chances the Bank of Japan will tweak its stimulus plans this year. An expert committee appointed by India's top court says it does not see any regulatory failure around Adani Group's stock rallies in recent years or its recent sell-off following that Hindenburg short seller report. New filings out late yesterday showing Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway has further increased its stake in Occidental Petroleum. Shares of Oxy up almost a percent this morning. Berkshire snapping up about 3.5 million shares of Occidental over the past three trading days, boosting its stake in the company to more than 24%. A group of TikTok creators is suing Montana State Attorney General over a new law banning downloads of the popular social media platform in that state. The plaintiffs claim the act attempts to exercise powers over national security that Montana does not have. And shares of Farfetch surging after the luxury fashion company posted a narrower first quarter loss with sales topping forecast. Farfetch also keeping guidance for gross merchandise volume at around $4.9 billion, that is above analyst estimates. All right, we're gearing up for the trading day ahead. It's a lighter day with no major economic data. We're also at the tail end of earnings season. Darren Footlocker report results before the opening bell. New York Fed President John Williams speaks at 8.45 a.m. Eastern, while Fed Chair Jay Powell will take part in a conversation with former Fed Chief Ben Bernanke at 11 a.m. A lot of eyes on that one. And after the close, the Fed will release its weekly 8H8 report, which tracks the assets and liabilities of commercial banks. And the markets, they're going to try to build on their market, their recent positive momentum with the S&P and the NASDAQ. They're sitting at their highest level since last summer and on track for their best week since March. You can see futures are in the green as well. Let's bring in Aaron Gibbs, CIO of Main Street Asset Management, and Tiffany McGee, Pivotal Advisor, CEO and CIO. She is also a CNBC contributor. Ladies, great to see you on this Friday morning. Great to be here. All right. So, Aaron, I'm going to start with you. Um, We're seeing recently a big run up when it comes to the Nasdaq. We're also seeing a couple day winning streaks when it comes to the Nasdaq and the S&P. How do you feel about this rally? Is this a rally you think sustainable? 
Well, this has really been going on since sort of mid-March. I I think the past year we had a really nice two weeks of consolidation. So I think having a rally for the past couple of days um, does feel sustainable. Uh, However, I will caveat that that we are getting a little expensive when it comes to uh, valuations. Um, And when the outlook is a bit iffy, to say the least, uh, for the remainder of the year when it comes to profit expectations, operating margins, um, I don't want to get too expensive. So um, as I I don't believe that we need to get out of the S&P 500 completely, I think we just want to be a little pickier or a little more selective about which stocks we include. Okay, so Bank of America says get out at 4,200. We're at 4,200 right now, basically. So agree or disagree with that thesis or you're saying there's a later point you get out? Uh, So I think uh, if you're in the S&P 500, yeah, we are basically at you know, 19 times forward earnings, 4,200, uh, same thing. Uh, I, I don't think it means that you necessarily have to have a crash, but I think it's fair evaluation. So I would say more, I don't think you need to add more to the S&P 500. I think you need to be more selective about which stocks uh, that can still have a little more value and a little more upside and run. Okay. Tiffany, how are you feeling about this recent run-up, especially when it comes to the NASDAQ and tech? Are you a believer in that? Um, you know, we're just talking about some people, B of A, one of them believe there, this may all just be a bubble that could burst off this hype over AI. Well, that's a lot, Frank. Uh, so, listen, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, earlier you were talking about the debt ceiling. Um, that's always a concern. And really what we're talking about is volatility, right? And so my clients are institutions, so we're really in this for okay. uh, the long game. And we're really really thinking about portfolio protection. And when we're talking about that, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact, if we didn't highlight the fact, that the five-year Treasury is at 3.68. The 10-year is at 3.65. And so it's not exciting, but from a portfolio pro- uh, protection standpoint, I like it, and I'll take that all day long in a volatile market. All right, so, but so on the equity side, wait, Tiffany, I think, you're, you're leading okay. me to some really interesting stuff here. I love this that you're talking portfolio protection. Yeah. You obviously watch Worldwide Exchange. It's a big theme here. So let's go through your thesis when it comes to portfolio protection. What are you, what are you advising your clients to do? Well, first, we're definitely investing in bonds and treasuries. But on the equity side, you know, investors should really think about, should really, you know, consider having a set formula for selecting stocks. So for us, the formula is growth, quality, and income, right? And so first, don't abandon growth in volatile times because you may find some really great deals. Second, strong companies tend to weather storms better. And the third, in terms of income, the third is income. You know, look for companies with strong track records of, of paying dividends. Also, look for companies that are increasing their dividend, right? Because that's an indication that they have a very positive outlook for the future. No company wants to be, wants to be the company that increases their dividend and only to cut it. Uh, um, uh, relatively, uh, uh, r- relatively sooner um, after. So that's kind of like the formula. And so one other thing okay. that I think investors should should um, consider not doing is don't try to index your way through the volatility because there's some asset classes or some areas where active uh, where, where an active strategy is really more effective. I like that you gave us a don't as well, Aaron. We got to get going, but I know you have some picks for us. What's your number one pick that you would advise your clients to put money into today? Uh, so I would say just two, I would say Chipotle and Starbucks are, are two of my top picks, really strong free cash flows. And that's sort of our thesis is 
strong cash flow and quality. And, and that's, again, selective. Don't just buy in the index. All right, ladies, thank you very much. Enjoy the weekend. That's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. we got Squawk Box coming up next. Thank you for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.